What are you doing here? It's challenge day. You know we've influenced nearly every facet of white America. From our music to our style of dress, walk, talk, dress, mannerisms, we enrich your very existence. You should say thank you, man. Welcome to the Black Blue Podcast with Tariq Elamine. Here we examine the experience of African Americans in the United States, and we do that through interviews, commentary, and artistic performances. But before we begin, let's take a moment to call upon, to invite, and to humbly ask for the guidance and protection of the Most High. If there is any benefit found in this offering, it is only a reflection of that mercy. All right, folks, I guess I want to start out with a question. I wonder how many of you have seen uh, those uh, resist bumper stickers uh, on the back of, you know, people's cars. Uh, bumper stickers, duh. Uh, now, I'm sure that some of you have, many of you probably have, right? But I really started noticing them after Trump got elected, right? That was, a, I guess, a, a, an energizing uh, moment for folks, you know. I can't believe this happened. But anyway, but if you go on Twitter and you search resist, you'll find it's often used to punctuate political stances. Now, whether that's anti-Trump or if you're out that MAGA camp, right? Really doesn't matter. Or a thousand other fights that are being fought in the social media stratosphere. You'll find that hashtag resist. But for me, for a guy who's been drawn to the history of people who look like me, specifically the African in America, the word resist takes me back takes me back to one of the first books that I read. I mean, that I really, really just kind of poured myself uh, into. It, it was like it, it was a magnet. And this is back in 1982. And I remember the year because it, uh, unfortunately, it bookended a family loss. Uh, anyway, the book was actually three books. It was the Ebony Pictorial, History of Black America, a three-volume set. Now, I'm not going to sit here almost 40 years later and tell you I remember everything I read in those books, but I can tell you this. I can still feel my eyes opening to a reality of struggle and resistance as I turn those pages. I can still feel the shock and anger of my nine-year-old self at seeing a picture of Malcolm X's lifeless body lying on the stage of the Audubon Ballroom after he had been gunned down. I still remember the disbelief and I remember the horror that at that point I wasn't really able to fully express uh, at seeing a picture illustrating the way kidnapped Africans were packed like sardines in the cargo holes of slaving ships on their way to a life of brutality and servitude. I still remember seeing Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s picture in the book. And without being able to have the book in my hands to look at, right? It's just the memory of knowing that I saw him in that book. But I believe the picture that was there was that iconic picture of him laying lifeless on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. Like, how, I mean, how could that book, how could that picture not be in that book? But anyway. What I was introduced to, along with many notable achievers, was a cycle of sincere resistance met with violent reprisal. And among the 
pictures uh, or the figures that were uh, included, those who were victims of that reprisal, Dr. King, Malik el Shabazz, uh, a.k.a. Malcolm X, Medgar Evers, are only the tip of the iceberg. But when it comes to black people in the United States, going back to our kidnapping from Africa for the purposes of enslavement, which was for the benefit of the white power structure for white male landowners, our history is one where not only the active resistor was targeted, but the potential resistor as well. And this could have been a male or a female, but in keeping with the uh, division of communal responsibilities, right? So socially, just societally, uh, defense was a task most often left exclusively to men. Therefore, it was male resistance that was most often seen as most threatening. And that was the resistance that had to be stamped out. That is in order for the business of slavery to make sense from an economic standpoint, right? And economics is all about time and labor. It's about, you know, the investment of time. It's about maximizing your profit uh, and, and, and doing as little as possible to get that profit or being as, as efficient as, as possible to get that profit. So we realize economics has always been the driving force of those who came to North America, uh, those who would eventually go to war with the British in order to keep the whole economic pie for themselves. So when it came down to putting down the resistance uh, uh, of those who were enslaved, it was important that resistors be made an example of publicly. And we can also take that same logic back for those just for those three individuals I mentioned as far as uh, Dr. King, Malcolm X, Medgar Evers uh, and, and many others. Who were killed in in, in plain sight, you know, in, in public view. Now, what they could do. Sure, they could deal with 100 individuals ready to give their life for their freedom and deal with them on a case by case basis. But if you gather everyone. If you gather every one of the enslaved and single out the biggest African male, tie him down and proceed to savagely beat him to within an inch of his life. And afterwards, sodomize him. Give turns to the other white men present. Then, of all those who are there, the other males, the other women, the mothers of those future sons, they have all learned the perils of resistance. They have all learned that any outward signs of animosity, any outward signs, any visible signs of resistance will be dealt with in the most savage, in the most brutal terms. So anyway, if you want to know more about the specifics of that process, search the term buck breaking. And I'm probably sure many of you that are listening probably already know about this. But brutal public reprisals have always been the key to maintaining law and order. America loves that term law and order. And we'll come back to that term a bit later. It's going to come back up. Uh, I know. <laughs> I know that's a lot to get from a bumper sticker, but um, I can't really offer any apologies. That's just my upbringing. Anyway, when we think about human beings, when I think about human beings, regardless of their differences, 
uh, of our differences in language, culture, ethnicity. We are a resilient lot and we're adaptable. And there is something in all of us that despite the differences in our circumstances, the differences that we see, the things that we don't see, there's something in all of us that demands freedom. So how is all that reconciled in the face of violent reprisals against resistance? The answer? I don't have a drum roll. It's okay. You develop ways of public expressions of resistance that go undetected. I'll say it again. You develop ways of public expressions of resistance that go undetected by your captors. And one of the most ingenious methods of resistance to ever come from a human being are the songs of the enslaved. Swing low, Coming for to carry me home. Swing love, sweet chariot. Coming for to carry me. And what did I see coming for to carry me home? I saw a band of angels coming after me. Coming for to carry me home. That's why I sing, swing low, sweet chariot. Coming for to carry me home. Swing love, sweet chariot. to carry me home. Now, whether you call them folk songs or spirituals, I really don't think it's a point that's worth arguing. The, the important point is that these songs served multiple purposes. And whether it was to make their forced labor more manageable 
or to remind them of their own humanity in the midst of being treated like mindless cattle, or if they were used to communicate plans of escape. Songs like Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, which uh, according to Sarah Hopkins Bradford's biography of her, uh, it's entitled Scenes in the Life of Harriet Tubman. This was one of her favorite songs. Harriet Tubman's, that is. They were all, all of these songs, they were open yet undetected acts of resistance. Now, of course, it must be noted that even with the public savage destruction of the bodies of those resistors, whose intent was understood by the captors, uh, that didn't stop others from open resistance. This is extremely important uh, to remember. And unfortunately, we don't, this is not something that we are taught in our public school education. Because I think if we were taught this, we would see, we would see our current circumstances a lot differently. We would see ourselves as having agency uh, and ability and not think that the world is just what it is. But hopefully in the future, we're going to be able to talk about some of the estimated 250 revolts, 250 revolts enacted by enslaved people that occurred in the United States up until its abolition in 1865. And I hope that it's also coming across because this is a very deliberate choice of words to use the term enslaved as opposed to slave enslaved right because slave is a very passive uh it's a very passive term you just happen to be a slave and there's no responsibility for uh for anybody else in your condition as a slave but to be enslaved it directly points to a relationship to contact with a captor right with an enslaver Right. This is really important. Right. We don't want to look at things in a in a passive uh, through a passive lens. But today. Or as we have moved throughout history, we've gone from the horrors of enslavement past the terrors of the imposed second class citizenship of the Jim Crow South and the racist North. Right. The North doesn't get as, as much credit as it deserves. But uh, but still, let's pause for another side note before we really get back to the present day. And though we don't really have the time and I'm kind of kicking myself a little bit for bringing it up, but uh, we don't have the time to go into it right now, at least not in detail. It should be known that the public reprisals of whites in the Jim Crow South committed primarily against black men, although there are records of women being its victims. Uh, but I said primarily, primarily black men were the victims uh of that reprisal, of that, that violence, of that brutality, mainly in the form of public lynchings, castrations, and overall mutilations. These black folk were labeled, those victims, were often labeled in the media as criminals, as troublemakers, agitators, you know, whatever. But the point was to keep black folk um, perceived as a threat to society uh, and to somehow color these acts of savagery as ways to maintain law and order. But the brilliant mother Ida B. Wells would dedicate decades of her life in undoing uh, this, this false representation and really shedding light on the, the savage practice 
of public lynchings and everything that accompanied it and all of its all of its ugliness from the from the burnings, the mutilations and, and all of that. These black folk were labeled as criminals, as troublemakers, as agitators, whatever. And the whole point, the whole point was for them to be uh, used as examples to keep other black people in line, to maintain law and order. Right? I told you you're going to hear that phrase again. Right? And that's the power of that, that media narrative of positioning the oppressed as, as aggressors and then getting uh, the, the majority society, the dominant society, uh, to believe that there is a threat that is worthy of, of, a, of a reprisal of that nature. But anyway, uh, the brilliant Mother Ida B. Wells, who dedicated decades of her life uh, to documenting the thousands of lynchings that took place throughout the South uh, and also shedding light on that media practice. Right. There's so much that uh, that is translated from that point up uh, uh, up to today, uh, because those we see those practices continue uh, to be used now today. Today, much like the days of enslavement, there are two kinds of resistance. The resistance that draws the attention of the white power structure and the resistance that goes unnoticed. And I want to reintroduce a statement I made earlier about slavery being economically viable only if it could be accomplished with as little disruption as possible, namely the resistance from the enslaved. So without giving a really long winding explanation can we just all agree that black bodies represented economic power they represented wealth for white landowners they represented political power you know the whole uh being counted as three-fifths of a person uh thing so as we have appeared to become more liberal in our thinking as a society today and the doors of democracy have been opened so that we finally come to the point that we saw a black U.S. president and we rejoiced. Yes, I know for some he's going to say he's biracial, right? That that always comes up. But in a society that has dealt with folks based on the color of their skin, he's black. Okay, so we got to understand that uh, as it was during the time of chattel slavery, it is still today. You got to understand that those black bodies that existed during that time and those that populate America today. So whether they are the descendants of enslaved people or those who have immigrated here from some other former nation whose wealth has also been built on the exploitation of black and brown bodies or those who have come here from Africa, which is still to this day under attack still being exploited all those bodies and the wealth that comes from them were seen then and are seen now as belonging to the white power structure as the as the property they see themselves as the beneficiary that's right whatever is produced by them the white power structure has a right to it all of it and to resist that to deny that claim to assert that you have a right to the wealth you produce, to, to assert that you have a right of self-determination, it's to make yourself ripe for white retribution. Case in point, how many of you 
have heard of Sarah Rector. Sarah Rector. She was born to Joseph and Rose Rector, March of 1902, in a two-room cabin near Twine, Oklahoma, on Muskogee Creek Indian allotment land. Now, both of her parents' fathers had fought uh, with the Union Army during the Civil War, and they and their descendants were listed as freedmen on the Dawes Rolls, which were also known as the Final Rolls. These are the list of individuals who were accepted as eligible for tribal membership in the five civilized tribes, the Cherokees, Creeks, Choctaws, Chicksaws, and Seminoles, uh, by which they were entitled to land allotments under this treaty made in 1866 with the five civilized tribes uh, and the United States. So this would result in nearly 600 black children or Creek freedmen minors, as they were called, being granted 160 acres of land each. And this was all part of the process of integrating the Indian Territory with the Oklahoma Territory to form what we now know as the state of Oklahoma. So Sarah Rector and her family, they lived near the all-black town of Taft, and the parcel that was allotted to Sarah was located in Glenpool, 60 miles from where she and her family lived. And I guess it would probably not be a surprise to anybody, but it was considered infertile and inferior soil not suitable for farming. So they gave the better land to white settlers and members of the tribe. Now, the family lived simply, but not in poverty. But the $30 annual property tax bill on the land was a burden. Man, we could really get into something on just the whole tax thing. But anyway, so in order to cover that expense, Sarah's father leased her parcel to the Standard Oil Company. And in 1913, a wildcat independent oil driller, B.B. Jones, drilled a well on the property, produced a gusher. And that began to bring in 2,500 barrels of oil a day. And Sarah began to receive a daily income of $300. $300. Today, that would be almost $7,500. Right? $7,427 and 88 cents to be exact. That's what she was getting a day. So you can imagine what they were making off of that. If that's what she was getting. Um, this is where, this is the point where you are reminded of who the beneficiary is supposed to be. Who's supposed to benefit. Now the law at the time required full-blooded Indians, black adults, and children who were citizens of Indian territory with significant property and money to be assigned, and I quote, a well-respected, end quote, white guardian. So as soon as Rector began to receive this money, guardianship was changed to a uh, local white resident, a guy that they knew, J.T. Porter, so multiple new wells on the site were also productive and Rector's allotment subsequently became part of the famous Cushing Drumright oil field. And in the month of October 1913, one month, Sarah received royalties of eleven thousand five hundred and sixty seven dollars. It's one month. And of course, I know you're waiting for it. What would that be today? Today, it would be 
$286,394.25 for one month. Now, if you want to read more about Sarah Rector's story, you can go to blackpast.org. That's blackpast.org. You can get a little more info on her. But the real point here is how that exploitation was embedded in the law. You had to have a white guardian. So here we are, 46 years after emancipation. There are children who are born free as their creator intended. But the opportunity to build on that freedom, to not only live, but to be able to amass wealth, right, is being interrupted because they are not concerned about the legal status of black people because they determine what is legal. And within that is the legal remedy for the social threat of a black future vis-a-vis black children with financial means. In any other instance, would any group of people be expected to turn over their hopes for economic security to their former captors, their former tormentors? Come on now. Come on. Now imagine. Imagine how that same mind operates, how they see U.S. black economic spending power, right? The, The wealth that resides within those bodies that were forcibly emancipated, right? That, that they have struggled, they have struggled at every turn, at every bend to maintain proximity and control while, while also maintaining a separation. Imagine how they see the, the wealth that resides within the black population of the United States, a population which uh, Nielsen, everybody knows Nielsen, right? They do the ratings and all that, but they do they do quite a bit. But they estimated that spending power next year, 2020, to reach one point three trillion dollars. This year, we're looking at one point two. That's the dollar amount attached to the black population. So if black America was on an auction block, that would be the number they'd expect to extract from their ownership. And in keeping with business practices, they would look to earn more every year. But most importantly, they would be looking to protect their investment, which means that just as it was during the days of chattel slavery, resistance, or should I say preventing resistance, would be item number one, Item number one, item number two, item number three on their list. But what does resistance look like today? In an age where ideas can be transmitted instantly, find their way around the world. How does resistance look for black people seeking to reap the benefits of their own value? And although the words of our brother Gil Scott Heron come to mind, the revolution will not be televised. And those words have taken on, for for those of us who are familiar with them, uh, they've taken a, I think, a nostalgic space in our collective consciousness. But I think we forget that what we see or what we term to be resistance or evidence of changing times or reclamation of our own agency as a people is missing a key ingredient embedded in Brother Gill's message. The resistance will not be televised. 
and it will not have corporate sponsorship. That's right. This is a critically important uh, point to remember. Like I said, we're in the era of mass media, social media, the advancements of cell phone technology. They've made everybody a reporter, right? We've heard this before. Everybody's a reporter now. You got a cell phone in your pocket. You can pull it out, take video, take pictures, become an immediate on-site reporter. Our social media platforms, they've given everyone an opportunity to become a commentator and a pundit. Even this effort, this podcast, it exists in a sea of millions where everyone is trying to be heard. But even with, even with the democratization of communication, our national consciousness is still purposely focused on a celebration of celebrity culture built on the music, television, film, and sports industries. And not unlike the coded language of those Negro spirituals, which told of escape, communicating instructions, telling people to hold on, these songs that were sung in the fields, out in the open, under the eye and lash of a system built on their exploitation. Now we find different models of resistance taking place today in this new frontier. Here it is. Aha. Uh-huh. Dad, when I wear this on my date with Christine, oh, she is going to die. Hugman's <laughs> does it again. How much is it? See the label? Gordon Gartrell. This is the shirt. Gordon Gartrell is a big designer. Check out these details. Hidden buttons, mm-hmm. flap on the back, yeah. two-tone pockets. Work of art. How much? But the real thrill is a fat, <laughs> pure silk. Are your hands clean? Doctor's hands are always clean. The why they always washing them. <laughs> How much? How much? How much? Dad, if you want quality, you're gonna have to pay for it. $95. Oh, well, there must be a pair of pants in there, too. $95. Dad, the salesman said this will last a lifetime. And just think, if I live to be 90, that's about a dollar a year. Theo, I don't have a $95 shirt, and I have a job. Don't you want something better for your son? Sure. You want to trade your room for that shirt? No. All right, then. The shirt goes back. But, Dad, I told Christine I was getting a Gordon Gartrell. Tell Christine you lied. Dad. No 14-year-old boy should have a $95 shirt unless he is on stage with his four brothers. <laughs> I'll give you $30. 30 All right, then. I can't even get a Gordon Gartrell tie. Well, what are you, a personal friend of this man? 
now, you take $30 and get yourself a nice $30 shirt. Could you make it $35? I could make it nothing. <laughs> Mom, I'd grab it. You guys are ruining my life. But I don't mind. <laughs> Dad's taking it back. Just because it costs $95. Ooh, that's right. Those shirts are way overpriced. Yeah, but I look so good in it. Denise, when I came on that dressing room, the whole store was looking at me. You should see the way it shows off my upper body. <laughs> yeah, but $95. I don't care. A girl like Christine deserves a man like me in a shirt like that. <laughs> I can make you one just like it. You? I took sewing. Hey, I took English, but I got a D in it. I'm telling you, it's not that hard. You buy the material, you follow the pattern, shirt yourself a shirt. Well, we're not just talking about any shirt. We're talking about a Gordon Gottrell, the greatest shirt in the world. Oh, what makes it so great? $95. <laughs> it makes it expensive. See, when you pay $95, you're not just paying for this shirt. You're paying for Gordon Gottrell's Summer House on the Riviera. You're paying to feed his Arabian horses. You're paying for his Rolls Royce. Now, most folks my age remember this episode of The Cosby Show. This aired back in November of 1984. What you may not know, at least I didn't know until I researched it, and I came across a 1985 L.A. Times article written by Edward J. Breuer where he stated that blacks spent well over $100 billion on goods and services from non-minority firms in 1984, right, the same year that The Cosby Show aired says that these same corporations make purchases of less than 1% of this amount from black vendors. Right, that, was the, my, that was my huge takeaway from that article. Huge takeaway because when you think about that, when you put that into context, the spending of 84, and here we are now in 2019, uh, before we know it, we'll be into 2020. And now we're at a $1.2 trillion economy. Think about this. The Cosby Show ran for eight seasons, was in the top 20 for ratings each of those seasons, and spent five consecutive seasons at number one. Now think about the message being sent to black folk in that scene, especially black youth, which I was at the time. Cliff tells Theo, no 14-year-old boy should have a $95 shirt unless he's on stage performing with his four brothers. Now, for the younger family members in the room who may not have gotten what that reference was about, that was referring to the Jackson Five, right? Michael Jackson and his brothers. All right, okay. Uh, moving right along. Now, if you think about that $100 billion spent by African Americans in the U.S. that same year, and also keep in mind the fact that that money never returned to the community. Well, minus 1%. So it's that same dynamic of slavery being continued 120 years after emancipation. Ask yourself this question. How many times did you see the Huxtable family car? How many times did you see any brand name being raised up? The clip we just played, it's case in point. The, the, the space that Theo was operating from, right? going for the $95 shirt, the brand name shirt. It was in opposition to the message that this show was intent on sending. That was an act of resistance. Don't let yourself be exploited. Don't let yourself be used 
by an industry that will take from you but has nothing to give you. Nothing but a brand. Now, we'll come back to the brand culture in a minute. But first, let's also consider that The Cosby Show brought us a different world, which brought HBCUs, historic black colleges and universities, into primetime and brought viewers into admissions offices. In a 2010 New York Times interview, Dr. Walter M. Kimbrough, who was president of Dillard University, stated that from the debut of The Cosby Show in 1984 until the end of A Different World in 1993, American higher education grew by 16.8%. During the same time period, historically black colleges and universities grew by 24.3%, better than all of higher education. A proper education gives you the tools to know yourself, recognize your worth, and to live free. But that knowledge of your worth as an African-American, it is a dangerous thing because your worth has always had a lean on it. Someone has always staked a claim or had their hand out or had some type of diversionary uh, tactic or structure up that got in the way of you and the rewards of your efforts. So the claims that you put on that worth put you in direct opposition with the power structure. And one thing, white power, and, and to understand when we talk about white power, white power is that exploitative power, unjust power, power that is built on keeping others weak. It's intelligent. That power is intelligent. It's intelligent. And because of the way power works and the effects that it has on uh, on some of the weak, some of those who are closer to it, some find themselves currying for favor, trying to get on the good side of power. And they're the ones who back in the day, back in the days of chattel slavery, those are the ones who would run back and tell the captors about the escape plan or the plans for revolt of those who are ready to act on their desire for freedom. I say this because that intelligence of the captor, the white power structure, uses the weak against the weak. It creates the illusion of resistance, the fiction of progress by handpicking the leaders who will promote the ideas and values that allow the continued exploitation of the oppressed. Because remember, that is what they see the African-American as. Their birthright, their cash crop, something to be plucked, to be picked, to be pressed. Remember, Sarah Rector, if you receive a financial windfall, they must have access to it. They must have control over it. Anyway, anyway, 1984. $100 billion spent by African-Americans. 1990, six years later, black buying power was at $320 billion. And next year, coming to the present day, in 2020, African-American spending power is estimated to reach $1.3 trillion. That's right, $1.3 trillion. Now think about the leaders whether you have folks in the pulpit preaching a gospel of prosperity 
or it's a rap artist bragging about a luxury lifestyle that the majority of his or her listeners will never know, but who will still just the same judge themselves as less than, as inadequate, as a failure if they don't go out and imitate what they see, what they hear from those artists or what they or what they hear being preached from the pulpit. Or it might be the ball player with a shoe deal. Now, if we get into the conversation about ball players, we have to start with the man that they built it all around. MJ, Michael Jordan. Now, according to a 2014 report in the Citizen Times, which is part of the USA Today network, Air Jordans, which are manufactured in China at that time in 2014, reportedly cost Nike around $16 a pair to produce. However, in doing a little investigating myself, just checking on Amazon, I saw the Air Jordan 10s going for between $250 to $550 a pair, depending on the style and color. And consider this. According to a report published on CNN.com, four out of 10 Americans can't afford a $400 emergency. We could probably do an entire hour just on this, but we'll have to put a pin in this and come back to it at a later date. We'll see. But Mike gets a check from Nike, not the other way around. Mike gets a check from Nike. You understand this? He's compensated for perpetuating a system of exploitation. He and all the others that convince their adoring public to pay 200% markups and higher in other cases, that's being conservative, to companies that feed off of the people but don't feed them. They don't hire, don't support, don't do anything but take. Now, I have read reports that Nike now has one of the most diverse corporate staffs uh, in its history. I believe it's over 50% of their their staff now are minorities. All right. That's great. That's great. But still, where's the manufacturing taking place? Remember that 100 billion spent in 1984 and the 1% that came back? That's what we're talking about. Now, the last point I want to make is that sometimes we mistake or what we mistake for resistance is really cooperation. Remember that statement, the resistance will not be televised. To me, that means the resistance will not, and I repeat, will not have corporate sponsorship. And I know there will be some who disagree with me, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about this next point, but the show Blackish, as much as I love the show, I love the writing, the actors, the issues, the social issues they deal with, all of that. I love it. I have to point out that this also falls under the category of the intelligent captor's design. The white power structure that is willing to give you a platform to talk about social issues like police brutality and racism in the workplace, but make sure that it's done with a lead male character who works in the very industry, advertising that convinces people to purchase overpriced products. Number two, it's filled with product placement. Not like, you know, not that that's any uh, foreign thing, 
right? Because that's a part of the whole sitcom uh, and television and movie, the Hollywood strategy where corporations, they work hand in hand with the storytellers. But it's still, it, it should be said. It's filled with product placement. And it's not just the innocuous orange juice or breakfast cereals, but it's the luxury automobiles. Now, if the conversations on black culture and the commentary allowed by a brilliant show like Blackish are only possible because of the inclusion of the bins in the background or the closet full of Nike's in Dre's closet, then is it really resistance? Or is it just the same old exploitation? The same old grab for black dollars. I mean, remember this. Bill Cosby is the same guy who had the audacity to make a run, to make a bid for NBC, the network. He had, a, he had the audacity to make a run for NBC. That's the same guy who also, as I said, there was no, there was no episode about the family car. It was not about the material achievements. It was not about that. Even though he's a doctor, Claire's a lawyer. It was about values. And it was about pushing back against this rampant consumerism. And the value that we place on ourselves or the value that we take away from ourselves based on what we're able to put on our backs or on our feet. So consider this as we close out. A dollar circulates in Asian communities for a month. In Jewish communities, approximately 20 days. White communities, 17 days. And for six hours in the black community. Let it, let it sink in. I want to give a shout out to WeBuyBlack.com. And I want to remind us that today. Entertainment is often mistaken for resistance. But the litmus test is this. Does it give something to the listener? Does it give something to the viewer? Or does it leave us empty? Thank you for joining me for another edition of the Black Glue Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at BLK Glue Podcast and on Instagram at the Black Glue Podcast. Email us at the Black Glue Podcast at gmail.com. I remind myself and you that if there is any benefit found in this it is only due to the mercy of the most high and i pray that no one bears the burden of any mistakes i may have made